Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. This is Ostries Oz Miller. Today, I'm joined by Jackson Van Horn. Jackson, please introduce yourself. Hey, uh, my name is Jackson Van Horn. Uh, I'm a native to the Appalachia area, a uh, graduate of the Appalachian State uh, Music Industry Studies program, specifically with a focus in recording and production, as well as an uh, independent researcher of the spiritual and uh, the theoretical. Excellent, excellent. And you studied these great things. And that's actually the topic that you brought to us today. Will you just explain to the audience a little bit about what we're going to discuss today? Yeah, for sure. So uh, with my experiences uh, studying the music industry, as well as music theory as a whole, uh, there seems to be a whole lot of spiritual elements to that practice. You may uh, know how it goes way back to uh, Greek and even prior to that, but specifically I was looking into the quadrivium, uh, which mm -hmm. is tying together, you know, arithmetic, geometry, uh, music and astronomy as well. And mm -hmm. uh, that was something when I was in school that really uh, drew me in uh, to learning more about those interconnected systems. So I figured we could talk a little bit about music theory, constructing uh, a piece based on that, as well as that balance between uh, theory and feeling and uh, maybe even get into some uh, practical healing applications with music as well. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, uh, without further ado, Jackson, if you would like to get us started with one of the points, I can dive in, ask the ignorant questions so that no one else will ask, and then we can start unraveling everything. Yeah, sounds good. Let's see here. Where should we start? When I was uh, working in the music industry, mm -hmm. I got a good experience with uh, ex experimenting with a bunch of different styles of music. I've worked with a number of artists ranging anywhere from Grammy nominated, platinum selling, all mm -hmm. the way down mm -hmm. to your uh, mom and pop artists, so to speak, uh, exploring a multitude of different styles. Uh, but what really drew me in uh, was in my time at App State, uh, diving into the jazz studies program and uh, being able to work with some uh, very intellectual and very well-versed uh, personalities in that field. And it gave me a, a new foundation of uh, looking at that process of constructing a musical idea, uh, specifically uh, with diving into the modal perspective of music. Mm. Mm. And, you know, as a lay person who plays instruments but doesn't really get deeply into music theory i'm a pretty disjointed person with spirituality i have to ask what is this modal um contraption that you speak of just to use normal terms um not for you to use them but so that i sound like someone who is completely oblivious to everything that you're speaking about most definitely so uh, I'm, you know, in music, there is a whole uh, bunch of different uh, tonalities uh, mm -hmm. in Western and Eastern culture. Uh, there's mm. a number of uh, different scale degrees, for example, and uh, mm. Western music, there is significantly less because in Eastern, uh, in Eastern 
constructions of music, they tend to focus on those uh, semitones and quarter tones, uh, those yes. in-between notes, so to speak. So uh, with typical pop music, uh, you're going to mainly focus on major sounds or minor sounds, either like happy or sad, right? So mm-hmm. uh, what, that, what that boils down to essentially is uh, each scale has uh, seven or eight notes if you count the octave. And uh, with the modal perspective, what that does is it allows you to further dissect it uh, to where you're starting on specific notes of the scale. So, for example, keeping it uh, on all the white keys, like the key of C, for example, not to get too technical with the terminology, uh, but starting with the root note and going all the way up to the root note would be the first mode. Whereas Mm. if you were to start on the second note of that scale degree and work your way up, uh, to the octave of that, which is essentially a doubling of that sound. Uh, it gives it a completely different characteristic. So uh, to kind of boil it down, uh, the modes are a way of exploring a singular sound or scale and uh, around seven different ways at least. And each of those ways conveys a different type of mood. Okay. Okay. So, so that makes sense now. Um, I can understand that. And you say Eastern music. I'm familiar with um, some Eastern music, like obviously the sitar, um, multi-string instrument and cathartic music, which does use mid-tones, quarter tones. But I'm, I think I'm more familiar, which is where I sort of differ, that I, I actually think of, whenever I think of music melody, like most people, I think of, European scaling or Western scaling, but I also think of like African and Aboriginal uh, musics of the ocean, you know, the Pacific islands that don't really use a sliding scale like we do in Western music, but use more of a fluid movement into the music. Like it's not necessary to match or to harmonize perfectly as long as you hit the pitch shift. Um, how does how does your experience coming into these different forms of music allow you to make your own music? Yeah, so uh, the way I've uh, come to understand it is that there is a balance between that technical understanding of what the music is conveying, so knowing your chords and uh, your theory backing behind it. Uh, mm-hmm. But deeper than that and earlier than that, there's that uh, primal connection in terms of feeling and uh, that connection to the source where uh, you are in a group setting specifically able to play off of those around you or mm-hmm. uh, convey uh, different energy just beyond, oh, we're playing like this note over this chord because it fits into this specific scale, scale degree or whatever. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that whole sounding good element. Uh, but yes. there is that delicate balance to it as well. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And then to sort of ease into another topic, um, where does this leave us now that we have this establishment of the sort of connection to the source and we understand our scaling, we understand multiple types of music? Where do we go from here, Jackson? Well, I would say with the way that the music industry has been working recently, we're seeing a lot more uh, direct peer-to-peer collaboration 
mm-hmm. where those who are maybe more well-versed in that technical side of things are able to have that direct line uh, to those who may have that direct uh, connection to that source. Uh, so, mm-hmm. for example, uh, working in a studio environment, I spent a brief time in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, working at a uh, hip-hop and R&B slash pop studio, uh, Black Pearl Studios. Uh, the mm-hmm. clients range from uh, rappers like The Baby, uh, mm-hmm. Luke Nasty, as well as uh, a number of other uh, local and regional uh, R&B and hip-hop acts. So mm-hmm. we have this uh, kind of environment where you have uh, a certain number of uh, cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, uh, who are able to provide that foundation to where uh, the artist or uh, the one who has that connection uh, typically or maybe finds himself rooted in that is able to catch that spark of inspiration. Uh, So it becomes more of a space where we're able to uh, ease each other into uh, both sides of the coin, so to speak. Okay. And let's say I'm I'm someone who doesn't listen to music that much, which is not too far from the truth. I listen to various types of music, you know, genre-sweeping, but whenever I'm in the car, I'm as likely to play music as I am to just ride in silence. So what would you say would be a good introduction for someone like me just into this broad, broader word, world of music than we typically see? I think that the best point of entry would be finding something that would resonate within you. Uh, I'm going to get into it a little bit later when we talk mm-hmm. about uh, specific frequencies and uh, wavelengths and things of that sort. Uh, but you, when you listen to something new, uh, you know when it strikes a chord in you and you can mm-hmm. know when it uh, resonates with uh, your taste or uh, where you're at emotionally. Uh, mm-hmm. So things like that, I think that exploration of uh, music that's coming out nowadays is easier than ever. And it makes it way easier to find those uh, types of artists or specific sounds that uh, can add a, a nice complimentary um, essence to what you're doing at that moment. Like with car rides, for example, finding something that uh, is able to pass the time quickly, is able to uh, mm-hmm. accurately reflect maybe the scenery you're driving through. Uh, there's a number of ways that you can access that connection to that uh, musical source. Yeah. Okay. And with that being said, um, where do you want to move the conversation now that we've gotten to the establishment of what we're discussing, how it relates to us as individuals and the audience? Uh, where do we go now? I would say we could dive uh, into that uh, spiritual application of the music practice. Uh, I was thinking about this time I spent at Upstate where I would have Uh, breaks in between my classes and I would Mm -hmm. just drop into random uh, classes that my friends were going to or uh, you know just something that would interest me and there's this one class in particular I took that was a uh, a class that focused on uh, magic witchcraft and religion which is an an odd uh, collection of things to be lumped together but I guess they do have some underlying themes Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but specifically the day I went in there was uh, really complimentary to Uh, the things I was learning in school, uh, specifically those practical applications, uh, and especially with uh, trance states. So 
uh, I'm sure you're familiar to an extent with uh, trans states in general, uh, mm-hmm. altered mm-hmm. states of consciousness, and uh, having that access to the uh, unconscious or subconscious mind. So uh, about 10% of our mind's activity is operating on that conscious level. Uh, that's not to say we're using only 10% of our capacity. Our brains are firing on all cylinders, typically. So mm-hmm. uh, that's to say more so there is uh, 90% of that activity uh, that is maybe something we're unaware of or something that we're not always uh, recognizing in our waking moments. Uh, so mm-hmm. using music or uh, tonality as a tool uh, for altering or accessing uh, those parts of the mind. Okay. Okay. Uh, that is interesting. And I, so, so I took a similar class. Um, it was a simpler name, less cool name, actually, <laughs> when, in my time at Young Harris. It was called Theories of Religion. And we talked about the evolution of uh, sort of trance speakers to, to magic men, to magicians, to, to um, leaders like priests, eventually up to kings ordained by God to a hereditary state. And uh, an old professor, actually my advisor, Claudia Massacott, she wrote a book called Trance Speakers, Femininity and Authorship in Spiritual Seances, 1850 to 1930. And I think it, it's definitely interesting how music uh, and spirituality in general ties deeply with progressive movements. Like, because in order to be rigid and to be someone who wants to maintain the status quo, then clearly you're not thinking freely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not your unwillingness to accept different styles, different cultural um, norms of music and of spirituality leads you to a bottleneck that that not only disables you from progressing, but uh, a body at rest, a body at equilibrium is a dead body. Eventually, your culture, your society will die. Yeah, completely. And uh, I think one of the other uh, risks in that would be, uh, on one side, you may be too rigid to uh, open your mind to exploring those other possibilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sometimes there's a tendency uh, when we're exposed to like new ways of thinking, uh, it's easy to slide into that and automatically uh, take it as like a concrete, this is who I am, Mm -hmm. this is how Mm -hmm. I am at this point going forward. And at that point, you're just uh, moving from one box to the other. And our reality is uh, constantly changing. One of the constant uh, concepts that's uh, present in most musical compositions is that idea of uh, tension and release. You notice it a lot Mm -hmm. in more Mm free-form styles of music, uh, like jazz or experimental uh, sorts of stuff, where uh, they're leaning into these diminished chords or... uh, darker sounds and finding interesting ways to bring it back on home. So uh, kind of tying it back into that modal perspective uh, or even like a diatonic uh, scale, each scale degree is almost like moving from the starting home point uh, to uh, finding yourself back at home again, once you reach the octave. So it's definitely uh, an interesting way of, perceiving uh those musical ideas and laying out almost a roadmap uh for a story you're wanting to tell without words 
Yeah. Yeah. I I completely understand that. And it just hit me whenever you said tension and release. I suppose this is already innately in or subconsciously with me that music is tension and release. But I think of my two favorite orchestral pieces, which are relatively modern, which is uh, The Inner Light, which was on a Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. And it it's a long, a long melodic tension of Jean-Luc Picard living this life that he knows is not his own. And then there's a break and a resolution, uh, sort of a volta, where the music picks up in pace because he realizes his life is not his own, but it is irrelevant because he live, he's living it nonetheless. And Shahrazad by Rimsky-Korsakov, which tells the story of a thousand and one Arabian nights, Shahrazad trying to save her life and the life the lives of the other brides to the to the sheikh because he kills a new wife every morning because no woman is perfect for him so she tells a long and arduous story for a thousand and one nights until he falls in love with her and in that release that of the tension is whenever the song smooths out with a the most beautiful violin solo ever which is always played on a a Stradivarius and it's yeah it just made me think of it whenever you said tension and release that's awesome yeah those are some really awesome examples I think uh with going off of that it's it's that connection to the music where uh, we can feel it almost in a way beyond the actions on the screen or the words that are being said or the lyrics of the song uh something mm-hmm. about uh, the movement of the tonality and the harmonies and the different like components that make up the piece are able to convey uh, on a deeper emotional uh, connected level uh, the message of what's being uh, shown to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And before we move on, you know, just to humor people, I've told um, some close friends of the podcast that you're going to be on here. So a few of them have asked if I would um, ask of you. So Ben Shapiro. Yes. Not very recently, but I'm sure you've heard about this, has a few interesting ideas about music and what uh, constitutes music, specifically hip hop. Um, it's lack of melody, what have you. It's whether he said vulgarness or not. Can you please address this for us before we move on? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I'd be happy to. Um, I haven't seen necessarily the, the, excuse me, the specifics of uh, what he was saying. I know he had some commentary about uh, the new Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion song. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. he's referencing to. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of his criticisms that he is bringing up uh, are criticisms that have been brought up uh, over the past 100, 200 years about any mm-hmm. uh, forward-thinking, predominantly uh, black music, uh, mm. you know, with uh, one thing I really realized working in a, a hip-hop studio, going uh, from a jazz program in school, which, you know, I must say is kind of a weird way to learn about jazz, but uh, the the method of conversation, the, um, the messages being portrayed, the emotion conveyed, as well as the uh, focus on rhythm and... Um, that percussive element 
Mm-hmm. Those are all like cornerstones of black music and how it's evolved over time, like with mm-hmm. improvisation and jazz being uh, correlated with uh, freestyling or you know, sometimes you'll hear uh, rappers borrow each other's lines just for like a second or two in a song uh, across, mm-hmm. you know, albums and uh, different time periods and such, or even like sampling. Uh, that's something that was uh, and still is a huge part of uh, jazz culture and jazz composition. You'll hear uh, in a solo and like a modern jazz composition, they'll use a lick that someone used uh, 50 years ago in a completely mm-hmm. different style. So uh, while it may not be, the music that he perceives is uh, having value. Uh, I think what it comes down to is that uh, anything that is an expression of the uh, creator or um, the one who is uh, making the music is uh, something that should definitely be considered music. And the fact that it's being written off just because it's like not singing or, uh, you know, not traditional uh, basic chord progressions or chord structure. uh, Mm -hmm. It just seems a little, uh, short-sighted and uh, narrow-focused. Okay. Yeah. I thank you. I, I know others will um, be happy that you addressed that as well. Most definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I must say, I have to agree with you. There's. I don't think because a few, or at least you know, because whenever we think of, I think of life. Like, you know, we have all the definitions of life, the the certain premises that you have to meet to get to the conclusion that something is living. But if it lacks one of these premises, then we have to decide as a community, um, as a scientific community, whether something is living or not. I think music shouldn't be like that. Like if we meet, let's say, five out of the six premises to be music, then I say whether or not any of us agree that it let's say lacks a certain harmony or melody it's irrelevant because the artist put it out there as music you know some people disagreed with big frida and the bounce movement which um evolved from new orleans came by way of other groups which is has a very strong history in congo and west africa but people did not like bounce music outside of New Orleans for a long time. And now we have music, torch music, so to speak, Um, you know, Beyonce's Lemonade, and people love it now. But in the, in its beginning, people had problems with it as well. Most definitely. And that's something uh, I've noticed in uh, specifically academic settings of uh, working with music. Uh, That's not to like, you know, bash on anyone I studied under because they're all like super talented and well versed. But uh, a lot of the things they focused on in the curriculum, and I feel a lot of institutions make this mistake, is uh, specifically uh, when dealing with uh, teaching white students, uh, predominantly black music, is they'll focus Mm. on uh, older forms as if now it's acceptable. And when you try and like push towards more modern, or uh, more forward-thinking types of music, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, well, this isn't the right kind of jazz or this isn't the right kind of, uh, you know, expression, so to speak. And um, you also see it with admissions programs being uh, focused on that uh, classical, uh, by-the-book, sheet music, 
uh, sort of mm-hmm. approach, which is completely valid and has a, a place in like the toolkit of the artist. But uh, I know a number of students uh, or potential students who had uh, a really unique voice and an incredible amount of talent, but uh, were barred from uh, participating uh, because it wasn't up to the standards set by uh, people who may or may not uh, have any understanding of the culture behind it or uh, have any uh, desire to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that drives me to think there are, I know of many artists who are brilliant, who can pick up an instrument and, you know, can perfectly reproduce something they've heard after they figure out the scaling of that instrument uh, within minutes, hours, but these individuals can't read music. So to some people, they're not seen as real artists, real musicians. They don't understand the Western scale or, or never had the opportunity to read music. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a, a big problem that we're seeing, uh, like barring people from experimenting or even exploring with those uh, forms of expression. Uh, I personally have never been uh, much of a sheet music person. I actually, uh, the first time I tried out for the School of Music, I got rejected because uh, a number of reasons, uh, mainly that I was unprepared for uh, what the uh, what the test was going to require, uh, being mm. uh, specific selections and uh, sight reading as well. And I think, you know, those are all important skills, but uh, I think there needs to be a uh, more open perspective and uh, meeting the uh, student, the potential student, uh, to where their skills lie and seeing, okay, this is a good starting point. How can I develop upon that and uh, slowly and gradually expand uh, their horizons to where uh, they're able to pick up on these things, but we're not, uh, you know, driving them away uh, by saying, oh, you're not uh, qualified enough to do this or that. Uh, Because, and if you're doing that, you're just going to be hurting yourself in the long run because you're uh, potentially losing a lot of uh, gifted minds and a lot of people who would otherwise uh, go on to do a lot of great things uh, may be discouraged to the point where they uh, don't want to have any part of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand that. And I feel as though if I were in that position, if I were playing or singing for a position to be a student or to join a group, and then it came down to that, I think that, you know, after a few times, it would be considerably discouraging. Most definitely. And uh, what it comes down to in the long run is, uh, at the end of the day, you're the person who knows yourself uh, better than anyone else. So uh, Mm -hmm. by understanding just because uh, some older individual who may not even understand uh, your upbringing or uh, the kind of skill set you do have uh, does not uh, lower your value in any means. And in mm. fact, a lot of um, really incredible art is stems from uh, that ability to adapt uh, to those hardships and struggles and uh, going back to that tension and release concept and uh, specifically improvisation uh, one of the fun tenets of improvisation is being able to, uh, you know, throw maybe a wrong chord in there and seeing how you can dance around on that and get back mm-hmm. to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I don't know what your next talking point is, but since we already mentioned improvisation, we've talked about jazz throwing in, so to speak, wrong chords and dancing around. I I liked jazz. Um, I remember going to New Orleans a lot whenever I was younger. And Giant Steps I heard performed live um, by by an artist. Uh, obviously not John Coltrane. I'm not old enough to have witnessed John Coltrane play, yeah. but uh, but I remember going down um, in the French Quarter and hearing it being played on the street outside of a jazz bar. And I walked in, and people were playing around it. You had trombone uh, trumpeters, and then a saxophonist who was playing. And I don't know. I conceptualized it in my mind as like a circle and he was dancing around the circle like jumping across different chords and notes and it it seemed so cool to me and then um very recently uh vox released a video on their youtube channel about giant steps and about how difficult it is to improvise on it and they showed like a visualization of a circle and then strings connecting the notes and how you have to be so precise, but you don't have the time or the ability to think about what you're going to play. It has to flow through you naturally. So either you have it or you train up to the point where you have it. So whether it's it's a uh, talent, as some might say, or, you know, hard work either way you have to get to a point where you can't think about improvising on pieces like this exactly it's kind of like um what miles davis said uh how mm. uh, you learn uh everything you can and then forget it basically because <laughs> at that mm. point uh you just want to get it under your fingers hammer it in uh get it to the point where it's just like another instinct for you and um at that point, it just uh, it kind of flows out, and at that at that point, it's just about getting out of your own way and kind of just letting uh, that creative source uh, flow out through you, and not trying to stamp on it. Which I think is a is a big uh, thing that artists, especially early in their development, go through. I know, as a guitarist, uh, the first ten years of you being a guitarist is just you uh, getting in the way of everything. It feels like, uh, from my personal experience. Uh, you know, and just like over time learning to shed off all of those elements that aren't serving uh, what's being created there. Uh, but I am I'm happy that you brought up that uh, that circle specifically because that does tie into uh, something I was wanting to dive into with uh, organizing uh, sort of that theoretical understanding. Um, there is this concept uh, back in the 50s uh, called the Lydian chromatic concept of tonal organization. Uh, which was uh, written by George Russell. And uh, his whole uh, spiel essentially was um, basing the tonal gravity of music on the uh, Lydian mode, which uh, going back to the modes, that would be the uh, fourth uh, scale degree, essentially. Uh, And the reason why he would put it in that state is if you take that circle that was in that video, which is known as the circle of fifths, uh, those are all uh, Pythagorean intervals. Mm, uh, mm, so okay. yes. going back to that Greek concept, uh, all of those uh, intervals are uh, frequency ratios uh, 
equal to a power of two divided by a power of three or uh, vice versa. So uh, losing the algebra talk because I'm not great at math or whatever, uh, that would be uh, like the fifth, like a perfect fifth up or a perfect fourth uh, up. And that would be like your mixture okay. and your minor. So uh, essentially it would take those first seven notes of that circle and uh, put mm -hmm. it into a scale. And as you uh, go up that scale, each degree uh, shifts the gravity of the tone. So uh, as you're going up that scale or running, doing that run, uh, you have more freedom as you go higher up to uh, explore harmonically. And uh, a lot of that theory was used uh, extensively in uh, Miles Davis's uh, like cool period with uh, Kind of Blue or that modal period, excuse me. Uh, where he was uh, working more with that modal perspective. He was working with artists like Bill Evans and John Coltrane and uh, kind of set uh, John Coltrane on his uh, path of that like astral, um, you know, headiness of uh, figuring out how free he could get with it. And I think that is really uh, beyond all like the technical jargon or like the academic uh, framework. Uh, jazz is all about like that freedom and, uh, that ability to adapt uh, from dissonance and bringing it back into something uh, concrete. Mm. Okay. Well, that, that was, I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, it's interesting to think about because I, I now have to think about it, which I like whenever someone comes to the podcast, as you know, Jackson, I, I try to invite people who know things that I don't, which is quite easy because everyone on the planet knows something I don't. <laughs> uh, but, but this is something that I thought I had some understanding of. And I, I know the words and I know how they connect, but because everyone thinks so differently, I, I suppose the way I connect them is extremely, uh, I wouldn't say rigid, but I do like the math um, but it's like the emotion sometimes whenever I'm thinking about things like knowledge-based things, I remove myself from my emotions and I'm beginning to understand that you can't do that with music, even in music theory. Completely. Yeah. Because music inherently is an expression of that, uh, primal deep emotional state that we're all, uh, inherently in possession of. And um, kind of uh, going off on a tangent with this, but uh, mm -hmm. I was listening to this talk uh, that Alan Watts was giving, uh, discussing okay, okay. the uh, Garden of Eden and mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. uh, the animals and how early on uh, the language being music and still how uh, most animals uh, have a tonal based language. So if, uh, say, for example, there was a bird uh, that mm -hmm. was raised in the wild versus one raised in captivity. Uh, they've done a number of studies on this and uh, the bird that's raised in a captive environment uh, and the one that's raised in the wild, the first half of their song uh, will be identical uh, where um, the back half uh, will be altered uh, in the one that was raised in isolation. Uh, mm -hmm. So that suggests that uh, potentially there is an inherent uh, DNA connection uh, to that musical understanding and then there's a part of it that is uh, learned through our environment and our interactions with others. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And with the calls, like, um, 
a lot of people I I know outside of the podcast know my my affinity with whale calls. Yeah. Uh, for whenever a few of us back in the day were working at camps, I would do whale calls for the kids because they thought it was cool. Um, <laughs> so so I whatever I hear tonality animals ingrained in the DNA, I think of yeah yeah I could definitely see that. To me, um, you know, because a lot of people who listen would be like, oh, spirituality, I don't want to hear this. But it's like, even beyond that, uh, to think it's in, it's embedded in our DNA. It's the very essence of what it means to be us. Even chimpanzees and bonobos who don't have the ability to control their vocal cords like humans. Uh, the fact that we even make an analogy to ourselves about every other uh, non-human animal shows our our unwillingness to accept the fact that we don't just possess music we don't just own it like it is it's a thing that we have at birth like we can't commodify it as to go back to Ben Shapiro we don't decide what music melody um, what have you is it it just is and then we can set up rules around it to say you're not in this specific style which is fine but you can't say that something is not included in the umbrella completely exactly yeah because it's like it's all based on these like foundations of uh sound and tonality and rhythm uh things that you really can't uh separate and you know uh early on with uh, our development before we're even able to speak words, we're making these guttural sounds or like coos or whatever things that mm-hmm. are uh, tonal in nature. And um, so there is that element to it. That is um, it's more so that the music is almost like this amorphous blob essence of uh, information uh, that mm-hmm. with us, with our like, you know, uh, developed monkey brains are able to, uh, put into that framework via okay if i play these specific notes together it'll make something that's pleasing to my ear or you know with this one it it just doesn't feel as good or whatever so uh, a lot of that is uh based upon uh who is the um person creating it and who's the person receiving it as well as like their own personal developments and uh biases and things of that sort Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay okay so I'm really, I'm really in this conversation now. So where are we going next? Where are we going next with this conversation? I would, uh, I think it might be good to dive on into uh, some of those applications of uh, music and trance states. Uh, Let's do it. Going off of uh, kind of what you're speaking on uh, the French quarter, uh, the circle and uh, playing off of one another. Music is best enjoyed uh, when shared with a group and, acting as like a conversational language. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are a lot of other purposes uh, for using uh, those trance states and creating that environment, uh, the ability to change people's way of thinking, uh, to heal them, Mm. uh, to show them an experience that they may not otherwise be able to uh, understand, uh, to help intensify uh, a thought process potentially, or, uh, you know, create a belief system. And, um, you know, there's a whole number of uh, different, Uh, methods that people will use to uh, potentially indoctrinate or, uh, you know, create these states. Uh, For example, uh, one thing that would come to mind for me is 
uh, like your traditional uh, like Hillsong United uh, kind of mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. modern like U2 style Christian music yeah. where you have super simple uh, chord structures. Typically, it starts at the home chord, uh, goes mm-hmm. to the dominant, and then it'll hit that uh, four, which is that Lydian we were speaking on earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with that call and response, the repetition, uh, as well as breath control. So I'm sure, you know, a lot of, um, practices, uh, with meditation and yoga is all about the mm-hmm. breath. So, mm-hmm. uh, creating something, uh, within a musical fr- framework, uh, that allows you to synchronize the breath of a whole bunch of different people, uh, kind of helps bring them into, uh, harmony with one another in a sense. Uh, so it's like, it kind of speaks to this experience I had uh, growing up in like middle school. I went to this church camp for a week uh, with a bunch of my friends. And mm-hmm. um, by the end of it, you know, uh, every day it's like uh, two or three services that are like two hours a piece. Uh, not a whole lot of time to do much else. Uh, you're just kind of immersed in uh, that environment. And then by the end of it, you know, we were all uh, with the spirit, so to speak. Uh, we all were feeling it and all like, riding that high of uh, having that shared experience for about a week. And then, you know, we were all back into our, uh, you know, reality and everything like that. But uh, I think a lot of these practices, it goes beyond religion. You see it uh, with political movements Mm -hmm. and um, uh, with the use of chants and um, the use of synchronized movements. Uh, Sometimes they'll even use methods of uh, sleep deprivation or uh, mm. shock tactics uh, to kind mm-hmm. of uh, implant these certain ideologies. So yeah. it goes beyond uh, music, but music is definitely a powerful tool of indoctrination. That's why you see, uh, you know, every four years, the presidential candidates like, let me get that born in the USA for my mm. rally or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause then everyone mm-hmm. there is like, I was born in the USA. So <laughs> So, you know, it just kind of like helps uh, to create that um, that shared frequency, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So so bear with me here. Totally. Uh, while you while you were speaking, I was taking in everything you said and I was like, oh, I have an idea about this. Then you added more. And I was like, no, no, no. I have another idea. <laughs> and then as you kept going until that very last thing born in the USA, I was like, cool, I have it now. So. I think of, right, and Khalid Johnson, who was on here last last week, yeah. would say, why are you always thinking about violence? But b- bear with me. Um, I think specifically of my time in Oceania in, uh, with West African communities, Central African communities um, in South America, I think of specifically three or four martial art forms which is what they're now considered which require music as like an offensive measure so to begin i think of lamb wrestling in senegal which looks like traditional greco-roman wrestling it they have similar origins as um barbaries as they were called by the greeks um and west africans uh, phoenicians all existed around the same time interacted so you have lamb wrestlers who go after each other and it appears aggressive, but the, the real aspect of lamb wrestling 
is the fact that each lamb wrestler is not the aggressor, but the defender. And they're defending themselves, not from the other wrestler, but from the beat. Mm. And then the drums are being played. And then the lamb wrestler, even though in modern lamb wrestling, you know, commercialized on TV, selling advertisements, just like with football, you know, uh, athletes are sponsored by companies. They might not think of it. But if you talk to older generations of lamb wrestlers, they'll tell you, uh, we're not fighting the other person. The beat is attacking us. Whenever people, everyone is hitting the drums, chanting, singing, the, the music is attacking us. And we have no choice but to best everyone who is playing the music. And then the other person is just the embodiment of music. And likewise for them, they see the person who's coming towards them, not their opponent, not their aggressor, but their way of besting the music to, to, to match the tones, to, to put on the best throws, because whenever the, the bout is over, the music stops. And the music is not the, the opposition, so to speak, but it is the aggressor. It is the thing that builds up the tension at, to go back to what you said earlier, the tension and the release is the throw and the back making contact with the ground to end the bout. Uh, the, the music pushes them to go further. Yeah, completely. Uh, that, that definitely, uh, that reminds me of some uh, studies I did uh, during some world music classes where uh, we were talking about the, uh, the Haitian population and their mm-hmm. use of, uh, of music and their ritual practices where, it would be uh, the terminology is escaping me, but essentially uh, like the deities were uh, almost jockeys of the uh, worshipers. Mm, so mm. Uh, using like that build up and the rhythmic elements uh, to, you know, channel uh, those otherworldly entities and uh, go about uh, the creation of those rituals and, I know even going beyond uh, like a like a cultural setting, let's say we're like just at our, you know, local show. I mean, you know, if we weren't all quarantined, but if we were mm-hmm. at like some concert or something and um, for example, like a metal show, uh, every time uh, there's a build up and then they hit like this heavy breakdown where they're just hitting all the low strings and it's just like wow, mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's when everyone's going crazy, swinging their fist around, just trying to, uh, you know hit someone i guess and um i think that music is like this thing that does have that uh really concrete impact on uh the actions of other people kind of like what you were saying with the wrestling uh how uh mm-hmm. even if they may not be consciously um aggressing against the uh, other wrestler uh the music in a subconscious way is acting on um their uh tendencies and is able to kind of bring forth at those moments when there is like a hit, maybe it forces mm-hmm. them to uh, sort of uh, lean into like their more aggressive side or mm-hmm. um, something to that sort. I don't know if that idea is conveying as well as I want it to, but no, no, it, it does. It does because uh, so uh, as you said, the tension breaks whenever they land um, a throw or a hit and the music, the it's almost as breathing. Right. So so it's always smooth. So it's not sometimes the match is decided who's going to win, which is similar to the Banda, which is what you're talking about in Haiti uh, right. with the the deities, the Loa, um, 
luckily you mentioned Haiti, which I'm quite familiar with because of my family, uh, voodoo practices in West Africa and the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So whenever a hit is landed or a throw is landed in the specific uh, wrestling that we were discussing is the music slows down. People go like, oh, you know, to build up again. And then whenever they stand up again, it, it goes to like, a and then it slowly builds up again until a roll again. And then it's almost, you know, within the general set of time that someone has to be down. So even if you want to win the bout completely, you need this money for your family. You understand that, hey, if he has the upper hand, one of us has to go down at this point. It's subconscious. In order to match the beat, someone has to go down. The odds are I'm not going to be able to throw him. So even though I'm going to try, if he gets the upper hand, I'm not going to fight it so that it matches with the traditional beat. Exactly. Yeah, it's like almost like tapping into that uh, spiritual element of diving into that subconscious, like understanding of the um, the bout itself and uh, kind of just like almost like you're watching yourself uh, go about this and like the music acting as a way to uh, pull you out of maybe that moment and uh, or maybe even like submit you further into it just to, like mm-hmm. in a state to where uh, you're able to like recognize these different elements of your thought process that otherwise may be uh, hidden to you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to mention one more, uh, what's viewed now as a combat sport, but we, we both um, in discussing this, we both understand that these are, these are just, uh, how would I say these are, I would say these are contact forms of dance with music i wouldn't necessarily call them martial arts martial arts to me is something that's solemn or used for either self-defense or um opposition without music right Um, and like something like capoeira dance fighting was a way to train while looking like you were dancing so that the slave masters didn't stop you and then at the right time the music would start and then the kicks would start to connect with your opponent. And then it was already too late because the slave masters allowed them to train for all of these years in the uh, capoeira angola and other styles of dances, which were adapted into fighting. You know, they already had the, the acrobatic skills from their traditional dancing. So they just modified it into a way that would be useful in order to escape, to sort of have the freedom, because they weren't free to speak their own language. They weren't free to, to sort of do their traditional things. The only thing that they were free to do was dance. So the, the limited freedom they had, they used to guarantee their freedom. They would escape to quilombos after using this form of dance fighting to liberate themselves from their oppressors. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like um, just being able, going back to with the improvisational angle too, uh, that ability to find yourself in that dissonant situation and uh, that mm-hmm. ability to be flexible and have that adaptability uh, to overcome those situations and uh, get to that place where you're more settled into uh, the root, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But with that dance and uh, musical uh, marriage is like a form of combat as well. 
uh, it's all like playing into that uh, inducing of uh, those religious experiences as well as those uh, trance-like states because you have uh, the motion as well as uh, exhaustion and, um, you know, you have that pain element in there as well, you know, uh, when those kicks connect is definitely not feeling good or anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that even goes back to the uh, the people who would uh, flagellate themselves uh, with like the cat and nine tails yes. and uh, being able to draw it out in that state. So it's, it's definitely intriguing to see how is it's almost like there's been this uh, interconnectivity between uh, liberation and religion and uh, music, like mm-hmm. as far back as we can, you know, observe. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I can fully agree with that. Um, yeah. So where are we going next, Jackson? I would, um, I would kind of say we should go into uh, maybe some standardization practices, maybe um, diving into healing as well as uh, just some examples uh, from my own uh, observations. Okay. So with, um, with that, um, I kind of wanted to touch base on uh, how we kind of all got to this point of uh, knowing like what note is what. So uh, back in the day, I say back in the day, that's so vague. Um, <laughs> but in the early like 18th, 19th century, uh, you would, uh, pretty much from city to city, each, um, each community would have their own um, sort of standard as to what note was what. So um, let's see what the date was here. The first uh, attempt at standardization of music was uh, from the French. Mm-hmm. And let's see where that was set. In um, 1859, uh, they would set okay. uh, A to 435 hertz. So uh, the, the standard we use today is uh, A as uh, 440. And, uh, you know, there's uh, definitely some, like, new agey types who uh, swear by the whole A equals 432 is this, like, uh, you know, harmonious frequency with the earth and uh, oh, all these oh, other sorts oh, of things. Yes. Uh, but I don't think there's any like real scientific backing <laughs> behind that. Not that, you know, it's kind of hard with music because it is kind of like that line between science and magic and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just that connection to the yeah. otherworldly. So, um, but uh, the first attempt at that point was uh, set by France up until that point. Um, and uh, pretty much everyone had their own uh, set sound as to what a note was, you know, mm-hmm. due to like the construction of the instruments, it'd be like the same town. And uh, the church organ would be slightly uh, different pitch uh, than maybe like a piano you would see like in a commoner's house, uh, just because mm-hmm. of the quality of the instruments as well as how they were constructed. And um, you see that, you know, even uh, branching out from Europe, uh, going to West Africa. I, uh, when I was in school, I had this uh, professor who helped me out with this project by providing some uh, traditional West African percussion. And the first mm-hmm. thing he told me, he was like, all right. First of all, you like you can't like lump this all together because when I spent time there, you would you know walk like twenty minutes from one village mm-hmm. to the next, mm-hmm. and it'd be a completely different language, completely different dialect, yes. and uh, the language of the rhythm would be uh, completely different as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, that sort of like variation 
and uh, all these different uh, standards that were set goes back uh, way, way back. Uh, but the, the main uh, push for that standardization is um, it was pretty much taking place in the, excuse me real quick, I got to take a gander here. Uh, 1939. So uh, instead of keeping it at that 435 that the French did, uh, an international conference uh, decided to tune it to that 440, uh, which is known as like standard concert pitch now. Uh, there's some um, some people who believe uh, that it was a Nazi push uh, to sort of uh, slightly heighten the frequency. So the people who swear by the 432 uh, also have this narrative uh, that the Nazis uh, would use 440 and standardize that as a means of like slightly raising it, making it sharp, which tended to put people on edge. Uh, but there's not really anything that uh, backs that up. Typically, um, it, the way the record shows is that was a U.S. Uh, practice uh, where they pushed for that. Mm. And um, with that, uh, the main issue that people had with that standardization was that it made it a little more strain on the vocals. Because uh, typically, if it was a lower uh, setting, people were able to, um, you know, settle more into their voice. Uh, but for people at that time who may not have been trained for that, uh, it was a it was an adjustment for them. And then that begs the question of, uh, you know, with these slight changes, uh, how, you know, how else could these different vibrations and frequencies uh, be impacting us and uh, having an effect on us? Since, uh, you know, if you were to send a frequency through water it would ripple out and our bodies are uh mostly made of water uh, mm -hmm. it would just beg to say that uh there is a potential impact of uh, you know what we're listening to uh what we're seeing and how that mm -hmm. may uh impact our bodies and uh you know conversely how that may be an avenue uh for us to treat illnesses and uh, heal ourselves as well mm -hmm. so um when I was in App State, I spent a brief time uh, working with the meditation clubs and okay. I kind of just used that to uh, kind of uh, set the groundwork for my own practice as well as uh, try out some new ideas and see uh, what stuck with people and what like felt beneficial. So I would um, basically have this practice where I'd uh, find the frequencies of each uh, chakra point and uh, have a frequency generator. And while uh, providing uh, visual guidance uh, for the meditators, I would slowly like fade out one and bring in another, mm -hmm. and have them like visualize like a ball of energy moving uh, up the column, so to speak, and um, seeing how that impacted people's uh, headspace. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know that you know maybe there isn't a specific frequency uh, that these points vibrate at, but um, there is a lot to be said for the power of suggestion. And uh, being able to uh, use that as a way to kind of help people settle in and uh, find that homeostasis. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I like how you said how, like, you know, those thoughts, thinking that it works, so to speak, makes it work. So you're not implying like like you talked about some of the new age people who stand by 432 hertz you're not you're not saying hey this this is something that will influence your chakras you're saying hey 
if you're open to it, then it could. Exactly. Because, like, going back to the whole, like, box model, if I were to approach it with, like, this is the end-all, be-all, this is absolute fact, uh, there goes, like, the mystical element to it. There goes, like, the faith element to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, uh, people just, instead of viewing it as, like, a practice or something that they can grow from, it becomes, like, a rigid, like, set of standards to adhere to. And uh, that kind of goes against the whole uh, point of meditation and mindfulness practices, at least from my experience. Uh, Yeah, that then kind of led me to wonder a little bit about if there had been any more uh, research onto um, essentially uh, sound or uh, light therapy and um, wondering if... uh, you know, for example, let's say there is a frequency like 440 being A. If you double that mm-hmm. to 880, that's an octave, right? So yes. if you were to go high up enough, would it get to the point uh, where it would break into a different uh, a different means of experiencing it, like with uh, light or, uh, you know, feeling? So kind of going off that uh, whole concept of synesthesia where mm. – people have the that crossing of the senses uh right so uh someone i was in school with uh had uh that synesthesia condition where they would uh be able to physically uh see uh sounds that they had and it would form to them as uh geometric shapes like uh flying through the room or forming and it kind of manifests differently in uh everyone mm-hmm. uh, but, um forgive me if i butcher this pronunciation but I was looking into Alexander Scriabin. Is that, I don't know if that's right, but. Uh, I, I do believe that's right. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, he actually had a synesthesia condition and mm-hmm. uh, had a mapping uh, on a keyboard as to uh, which colors uh, were corresponded with different notes. And funny enough, it's, uh, it's uh, overlaid on the circle of fifths that uh, John Coltrane was using and uh, that we've kind of been like touching back on every now and again. So. Uh, it's interesting to see, and it just like um, I just didn't know if there was like a scientific uh, way to quantify it to where you know you uh, double the frequency enough, and instead of hearing it, you like would see it. I know with lower frequencies, uh, specifically, uh, they're typically more so felt as opposed to heard. Uh, so that's where uh, that kind of groove element comes in, and that's what gets people uh, moving and everything. Uh, but the main thing that kind of was like a roadblock in that was um, essentially sound and light are different. We use the term frequencies uh, to uh, describe part in that. That's all right. So um, essentially um, the difference between sound and light is that um, sound is based on uh, air molecules vibrating um, as a moving compression wave, right? So uh, light, on the other hand, is uh, based more on electromagnetism. So uh, there's no real easy way just to like double it up and um, make that connection. But a number of people have definitely been uh, taking strides into uh, formulating ways to convert them uh, back and forth and Mm -hmm. uh, if that is potentially possible, uh, there's a lot of um, positive things that could come in the healing world. I know specifically there's this uh, company called Landoma 
which uh, they call themselves intelligent medical science, right? And they uh, go off of the law of nature, uh, stating uh, everything vibrating uh, within its frequency form and uh, principles of harmony and balance. So uh, they use uh, color therapy in addition to, um, you know, audio therapy to kind of treat people for different conditions and such. And they've, uh, they haven't done a whole, whole lot, but uh, I think they have a pretty uh, big authority in Taiwan in the music therapy field. Uh, but that was something that I came across that I found uh, interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah, that's a lot to think about. Uh, yeah. Can you, what, what, what was your next point to go from there? So I know if what I'm saying might mess it up. Most definitely. Um, I was thinking of going off of the point of uh, with uh, everything vibrating at a specific frequency and kind of going into that group trance mentality okay. and, and uh, having those ripple interactions. So, um, Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Please go there. That is a similar place to where I was going. So, so please go ahead. Most definitely. So um, in the music field specifically, you, you typically will see uh, artists that uh, generate like a cult following of sorts. You see it with uh, like the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead, for example, is a big one, uh, Fish and uh, Bass Nectar up until recently. He got into some legal trouble, so they've kind of uh, broken that off. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, typically it's, uh, it's, there's a good possibility of using uh, those sorts of environments to shift other people into your way of thinking so uh when i was in school i spent a number of summers uh going to different music festivals and stuff and i remember there's this one uh specific example uh where i was down in okeechobee florida at this (laughs) festival and uh bass nectar who's this like producer uh had a bunch of uh had like this huge set uh going and there's a whole lot of people just like thrashing and writhing around on the ground literally saw someone like naked on the ground eating grass and like praying and stuff it was like really strange but like you know this is like a Mm -hmm. subculture of people typically uh they're doing um you know essential worker kind of stuff with uh labor or um waiting or um you know food service industry stuff like that Mm -hmm. and typically uh the group that um kind of is drawn to these environments are people who are uh, more times than not in an environment where they feel, uh, you know, dampened out by their surroundings, uh, work to the bone, uh, typically underpaid. And um, then they have this environment where everything kind of comes out. And if you're not, you know, initiated into this uh, cult or whatever, um, when you are first immersed in that, uh, you may be a little bit um, you know, wary or, you know, uncertain. Uh, Mm -hmm. but what typically ends up happening is that after a long enough time, um, the frequency that everyone else is on, uh, whenever they're in this environment, uh, will hit your, will hit you with, uh, such frequency that, uh, you eventually will start, uh, transitioning over and, uh, sharing that, uh, same kind of thought process and, um, you know, worldview. And, uh, then you end up, eating grass naked on the ground. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So 
to maybe maybe some of the audience. I know some of the audience are familiar with me because a lot of people who listen to here have sent me emails, shows. And one of the shows or series that was suggested was a Canadian one that's on Hulu right now called Letter Kinney. Yeah. And there's uh, a group of individuals who I'd call like bass heads, rock, rock guys, punk guys who like music to this level of getting naked and eating grass on the ground yeah. called the skids. And whenever you were describing this concert with uh, bass nectar, I, I was just thinking, imagining the skids, uh, these guys who look like just, just average people who on the weekends do unaverage things like writhing around to music. And I'm like, okay, this could be literally anyone. I wonder what drives that. Is it because I assume I, I do assume that whenever people are like banging their heads or like moving their hands around during like vapor wave or what have you music that they're actually feeling this. But I also have to admit that I think some of the people who are doing it are not just like whenever we go to a Pentecostal church and we see people falling out. I'm thinking, ah, maybe one or two of these women, men are actually passing out from what they experience as the Holy Ghost. I don't think 90% of these people are weeping and falling from the Holy Spirit. Right. Exactly. And you, you see it with, um, there was this whole thing, I think it was Elevation had this scandal that kind of blew up where they were uh, uh, planning people in the audience uh, oh. to go up front whenever they called people for conversion or uh, conf- confession or uh, whatever it was, I haven't been to a, a service there, so I wouldn't know specifically, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, essentially people were planted uh, in specific points in the audience to where they would walk past uh, most of the people's line of sight. So there's that also uh, that pressure to, oh, you know, everyone else is doing this. So now I, I should take part because everyone else is feeling it and maybe I'm not feeling it. But if all these people are feeling it and I'm not, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so uh, you couple that with uh, you know, the music that's super, you know, beautiful, but simple and uh, kind of hammers home the message as well. Uh, for someone who may not be too steadfast in their own uh, self perspective, it can, uh, it can be an environment where they're easily swayed into uh, behaving in a specific way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Because obviously it's groupthink, the mentality of someone's doing it, and then a lot of people are doing If I'm not doing it, I'm the outlier. I can't look like this. So I, I think I might feel something, so I'm just going to go with it and hope that the something takes me over while I'm doing, like, the orthodoxy imbues me while I'm performing this orthopraxy. Right, exactly. It's like, if it's not hitting now, maybe uh, when I get up there and start doing it, it'll... Uh, take effect and then mm-hmm. it just ends up in a cycle of like okay well it didn't happen this time but everyone else feels like you know they're in such ecstasy in this moment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you can't you can't admit it so like if you're sitting around and like your group after after uh whatever the concert the church after being slapped by the preacher's jacket that knocked the holy ghost into you um you're you're chilling and you're like did you did you really feel it and they're looking at you, and then they're thinking in their mind, I know you felt it because I saw you fall. So even though I didn't, I'm going to say I did. 
yeah, I felt it. And then the person who asked, who actually didn't, goes like, yeah, yeah, me too. And then everyone just does that whenever, in fact, no one felt it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's a dangerous pattern. That's, uh, that's just confirmation bias because no one wants to look like the non-believer or the, you know, not a true fan. Exactly. And uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's fresh on my mind just because I listened to uh, uh, your podcast you put out last week. But uh, you can see it like really heavily within like the Q movement, uh, something mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. started off, you know, on a image board with anonymity and someone who seemed like they had high clearance. Uh, portraying uh, Trump to be this like uh, God emperor essentially. And, um, you know, just trust the plan. Like we're on the best timeline. Uh, Just know everything is going to end up okay. And like, you know, for everyone that's like, who is like super uh, embedded in that ideology, it is like this beacon of hope. And like, Mm -hmm. if they come to a point where they're like, you know, maybe this doesn't really like hold up, then the, the magic's gone essentially. And Mm. that's something that's, you know, like you were saying, is a dangerous place to be in because um, it's acting on those like unconscious and subconscious elements of the mind. So you don't even know how deeply ingrained those changes have been taking place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that the connection there was was, in fact, very clear. I think of like. um we talk about like in the military in the marine corps specifically it's not the indoctrination that makes you a marine even though they do their best it's whenever you go you're a lance corporal in e3 and you go to live in the barracks with the senior lance corporals who are the same rank as you but they can tell you what to do because they're combat vets right so you don't you don't hate brown people from the get go even if you're brown obviously you don't hate brown people indoctrinate you they say hey you don't have time to think. You shoot whenever you're ordered to shoot. You're like, okay, I could probably do that. And you have a Lance Corporal come back who's, uh, who has a gunshot wound. You know, one has a, a knife wound and then whatnot. And they're like, nah, you don't understand. Even if the sergeant tells you not to shoot, look at what happened to us whenever we didn't shoot. They are your enemy. If they're a little girl, they might have a bomb. No, you, you can't think. You, that's not what you do. Then you know they 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 haze you. So it's not the indoctrination of the organization. It's that group mentality. Either you're with us or you're against us. But you you have to be here for four years. So if you're against us, you're not going to survive. Exactly, exactly. Because it is like those bonds you're creating, and like they've gone through a lot of the same trauma, and so there's that like trauma bond that's like put in place and. Oftentimes, it's hard to break out of those uh, cycles. Mm-hmm. It's definitely unreal, but um, it is like something that you see, like even beyond um, military or even like person-to-person relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but going off of the the military, there was actually some research I was doing into uh, frequency studies that were allegedly uh, conducted uh, via. Uh, the Philadelphia experiment, excuse me, the uh, Philadelphia experiment, as well as the uh, mm-hmm. Montauk project. And uh, there's a list of different frequencies uh, that act on uh, different elements of the mind and correspondences to like mental states and uh, physiology and things of that sort. So um, they have like a whole list of uh, frequencies that can be played to treat 
uh, alcohol addiction, depression, as well as uh, heart conditions and things like that. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, we're seeing uh, the use of wavelengths and, uh, you know, suppression methods with like LRADs, Sonic uh, mm. cannons mm -hmm. being used at protests that are like blowing out people's eardrums. Yeah. Uh, ADS or ADSs, which are active denial systems, uh, mm -hmm. which essentially mm -hmm. uh, uh, heat the skin like in a super short period of time. So uh, while there is like a method uh, for healing and a potential for healing uh, with frequency studies and uh, uh, sound and music, um, some of these technologies are in fact being used to uh, suppress and, uh, you know, harm. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of science goes into this. Probably not as much is devoted into the aspect of acoustics and frequency healing as should be, because you know this America is in a curative model, not a preventative model of medicine. So uh, doctors get paid for receiving patients and recommending, and pharmacists and pharmaceutical companies get more money whenever people are recommended medicine that they can sell um, instead of uh, preventing sickness, which is an older style of medicine, which is what's done in, in, uh, in universal uh, healthcare systems where you actually receive money, whether or not you take patients. So it's better off if you don't take as many patients because then you could have a private practice and treat people with conditions that are not covered by that healthcare system, such as acoustics and frequency medicines. Most definitely. And um, as well as in indigenous medicine, you see a, like a renewed interest in that as well. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, with our culture being the one it is with uh, uh, the big pharma industries, which a lot of times the ingredients in the pills they're selling are uh, part of these indigenous medicines yes. cut with, uh, you know, synthetic things that are uh, designed to create other symptoms and, uh, you know, just create harm in general. And uh, mm -hmm. if you say anything against it, you're automatically, uh, you know, uh, anti-medicine or, uh, you know, pseudoscience or you, you're, you know, doing like faith healing or something like that. When, you know, there is like a certain mentality of people who do fall into that but it's like that whole box model again it's like you got to be able to uh, stay in motion and like get these ideas to evolve you know being able to look at something and be like you know maybe this doesn't fully resonate uh, with my experience but i could see the potential if we like pour energy into it or resources mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely agree with you um, with that 100% because with indigenous medicines, uh, people say, oh, we're using non-traditional, you know, and you, you living in the astral area are have to be extremely familiar with this group of individuals. Some might call them hipsters. I call them individuals who choose a different path from the mainstream, you yeah. know, because I don't like using terms that might be sort of mean to them but some of these people they discuss holistic medicines you know indigenous medicines and then say ah oh, i just use 
I don't know, tonic water to help prevent things instead of taking vaccines, which I, I feel is a, is a bit dangerous mm-hmm. because it's, it's not as though, you know, Amazonian communities, Caribbean, North American, uh, Canadian first tribes or first nations don't want to use vaccines. It's not their choice only to use their own medicines. But a lot of their medicines no longer exist because the environment is changing. Some of the plants that they would have used to create traditional vaccines, some of the funguses that they would have used to to make antibiotics no longer exist. So they're dying from not having vaccines. And people in our mainstream, not necessarily modern, because we all exist in the same time. Indigenous communities aren't, aren't outside of our time. They're not primitive. They, they're still in 2020. Right. They just choose a different way. Um, it's not that they don't want vaccines. They have no access to vaccines. So it makes me feel, you know, less than good to be concerned with people who choose to not use some of the medicines that have been shown disproportionately to save millions of lives over the course of that medicine's existence. Exactly. And I think a a big part of the issue is that we're relying so much on our, um, you know, kind of like neoliberal, like colonialist uh, mindset for uh, healthcare. So Mm -hmm. while these indigenous communities aren't able to necessarily uh, have access to this modern medicine, uh, you also have uh, people, uh, you know, typically European descendant who are going into these environments and uh, over foraging of like the natural uh, remedies that are Mm -hmm. present. That's a big thing that's going on in Asheville. You know, it's a big like transplant culture. You know, you get people moving in from Portland and Austin and there's like this whole like triad of just like constant cycling. And uh, you know, it is like trendy to be on like the, you know, super natural holistic healing. Uh, But uh, there is also this like, downside of it where just because it's like a new thing for a lot of like you know quote-unquote modern uh society they think like oh well we're the authority on it now and so we can harvest it as much as we need to and all this other stuff so it's like a like a double whammy almost Mm -hmm. yeah for certain um so where do we go where do we go from here to think about this Well, I think um, a lot of it is just going to have to be um, that transitional mind state, just understanding like uh, the perspective you hold is not necessarily one that's concrete and it shouldn't be. Uh, You should be able to Mm -hmm. evolve and adapt and, uh, you know, share frequencies with other people and kind of pull each other towards that uh, unified way of thinking in a way that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, no one... uh, side or angle is uh overpowering everything else Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and you know with me this bipartisan way of thinking that we do so frequently in the u.s especially now has divided us on on matters that are human rights like um these forced hysterectomies these these which are unnecessary right even to think of the way that we're talking about medicine, these are things that are unnecessary. It makes the lives of the, of the people who should be taking care 
of the people who should never have been imprisoned in the first place, it makes their lives easier. But it's not necessary. Or the fact that we are deporting people in mass whenever we have individuals and groups willing, sanctuary cities willing, and having resources and the infrastructure to take in these people. But the the people in charge currently say, hey, this is a bipartisan issue. This is not our party line affiliation. We don't agree with immigration, even though the irony is the fact that we're not indigenous to this place. We're not the first nations to this land. But we're going to do it nonetheless. Exactly. And I think a lot of that does come from that, um, you know, ordained, like, manifest destiny uh, origin Mm -hmm. of our nation, which is uh, also, you know, harkens back a lot to uh, Greco-Roman society as well. And you see a lot of the Mm. ills of that society are reflected in ours, um, specifically uh, with the imbalance of power and, um, you know, a certain ideology as to what the ideal human uh, should be or what they should look like or how they Mm. should think. It was talking about the kind of like polarity uh, perspective that we've been given and how we have to uh, specifically identify with one ideology or the other with very little little, uh, wiggle room or room for questioning of any of those ways of thought. And, um, you know, you couple that with uh, how distant we've been socially because of the pandemic as well as our increased presence online. Uh, there's mm-hmm. very little uh, space to be held for uh, conversation and kind of like uh, getting a shared frequency uh, going back to that, like being able to uh, kind of feel where the other person is and work it out with them to where y'all are like in unison. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, what else do you have for us, Jackson? Uh, you've talked about a lot of things here, uh, went very in-depth, but I, I have the strong feeling you have more. I I have some stuff I saved up. It may be a little uh, like too dense for me to get into right now. I could uh, okay. send it to you, but uh, before Absolutely. I head on out, I would uh, just like to say, you know, just like think about, uh, you know, how – these tools of trance and um, inducing those states can be positive as well as how they can be uh, used against you or uh, for a different purpose than maybe is in your best interest. And, Mm. um, you know, try and look into uh, how uh, this, these methods of healing uh, that maybe are tucked away or not as well publicized uh, can be utilized uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of, push us forward in an evolutionary state and uh from a musical perspective uh next time when you listen to a song you like uh maybe like look up like a chart for it see uh what the theory is behind it and see what they are trying to convey uh with the music because uh that merging of those two uh polar sides of uh theory and uh, feeling are definitely integral into uh getting the full picture as to what's going on Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Jackson, I really appreciate you for coming on the podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to this one. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience did as well. Is there any way, um, anywhere 
that the audience could follow you, find your music. Um, feel free right now to just let them know where they can find you and your music. Most definitely. So uh, you can follow me on Instagram at artwavy, A-R-T-W-A-V-E-Y. Uh, you can also find me on Spotify under that name, as well as uh, the name Pink Beds. Uh, that's a new project I've been working on. We got a new music video coming out soon, as mm -hmm. well as an album with some near and dear friends of mine. Uh, so I'm really excited about that one. Uh, but yeah, I just want to say thanks again for the opportunity. It's an absolute joy and pleasure to be able to speak with you. Okay. It was, it was a pleasure to speak with you as well. Um, I hope you have a good day, and we'll definitely talk again soon. Excellent. Sounds good. You have a good one. Okay. You too. Bye.